Welcome to Theology on Tap, everybody. We're so glad that you're here. We're going to get started. Uh, if this is your first time, welcome. Uh, my name is Justin. This is Brian McGreevy, and we are delighted that you are here. Tonight's a little bit uh, of a different kind of Theology on Tap. It's really fun. We do this every few months. Normally what we do is we'll talk about a specific topic for you know, 20, 30 minutes and then open it up to whatever kind of questions you pose uh, and you'll see these around the room. You'll need that. You can uh, text in any question anonymously just by scanning that QR code at the top. And it doesn't have to relate usually to anything that we talk about. Uh, and do we have somebody who's going to moderate those questions tonight? I don't even know. Hugh. Hugh's going to do it. Thanks. Thanks, yes. Hugh. He's got the mic. But all um, right. we inevitably never get to all the questions on, on a given theology on tap. And so what we do every few months is we take all the questions that we haven't gotten to and we compile them, throw them into a bowl, and then we rapid fire. And tonight, I have high hopes. We're going to do it. I, I really you want to. You think we're going to actually be rapid? Uh, we're going to be rapid. <laughs> I, I want us to get through more questions than we ever have okay, before. Well, That's we'll my goal. That yes. Like I said, it's lofty, but I think we're going to do it. <laughs> um, just another announcement. A lot of you, I was really impressed. There was like almost uh, 20 or so folks who've responded about fellowship opportunities, pickleball, game nights, supper clubs. Uh, so we're, if you filled that out like a month ago, I was out of the country, I'm back from vacation now, so like I apologize, it's been forever. But we're gonna get some of those started up. Some of them have already been going anyways, but um, I'm gonna find people to kind of head up each one of those areas of interest. And so be on the lookout for a text or an email about some of those things starting up here in the summertime, and especially once we get, we'll get those going here. So, um, but am I missing anything? Is that uh, a mailing list okay. or well, email list? That's right. That's on here. You'll see on the bottom uh, of this sheet, you'll, you can join our email list and be up to date everything Theology on Tap related. So with that, let's see how many we can get through tonight. So, and these... I tell you what, I mean, I, I put them all onto, you know, little slips of paper. They're all over the map, so I hope you're ready. All right. Let's go for it. <clears throat> oh, this is a good question. I've gone out of my way to spend time with someone that I knew was lonely, but I didn't enjoy spending time with that person. <laughs> is it wrong to not want to hang out again? That is a great question. Did you write it about me? <laughs> Justin, I've been meaning to have a frank conversation with you. Yes. I think You're it's my a, cross to bear. It's an honest question, right? Because I think we've all experienced something like yeah. that in some ways. And I would say, no, it's not wrong to, to feel, man, this, this is hard. I think it's an incredibly good thing to at least be aware of the fact of a couple things. That this person's lonely, that it's a struggle maybe, but to persevere into it. And I think the, the best way to go into that is to think about, uh, this gets easier, I will say, Lord willing, when you have kids of your own. Like, oftentimes, it's a, it can be really difficult to be around. Um, I, I love my children, but sometimes it's obnoxious. It can be a, a cross to bear, as you said. So, uh, but that's in any sort of friendship or um, group or club or anything like that, you'll be around folks that necessarily, and I think it's a, that's what, at the end of the day, thinking about the way God comes after us when we not just weren't seeking him, but you were, you know, Running. turning away from Running. him and, yeah. and maligning him, and, and he has set his affection on us in a, in a way that is relentless in some ways. So thinking about that of how God's loved you will empower you to, to get over the frustration, perhaps, or at least to move through the frustration, to continue to love well. But I, th I don't think it's wrong to necessarily No, and I think that. that's an honest feeling. I do think one thing that you can do is to pray for that person. And if you want to really be bold and kind of take the bull by the horns with that situation, a great thing to do would be to pull out uh, C.S. Lewis's book, The Four Loves, and suggest that you read the friendship chapter together. Wow. With that person. Wow. That is taking the bull by the horns. <laughs> All right. If you have not read that chapter, it's great. Yeah. All right. What's the difference between waiting for God's timing and being lazy or just giving up? Oh, such a good question. Uh, so 
Waiting on God's timing. Waiting is something that is all through the scriptures. Uh, it is everywhere in the Old Testament and the New Testament. But the waiting that's talked about in scriptures is what I would call a proactive and expectant <coughs> waiting. Where you are, uh, if, for example, if you're trying to make a decision about something and you're waiting on the Lord, um, that doesn't mean that you just go and binge Netflix for months waiting for a vision of angels to descend upon you or invade your Instagram feed. Um, but that is not likely to happen. But what it does mean is that you should be proactive in your spiritual disciplines. You should be proactive about worship. You should be proactive about seeking counsel. You should be proactive about asking God to open your eyes to any ways that he may be trying to guide you. Um, there is a great song about waiting from Mumford and Sons called I Will Wait. And it's a great song because there's a lot of act active waiting in that. Being lazy and just sort of tuning out uh, is not waiting on the Lord. Yeah. I don't, was it you or Bill this two weeks ago preaching on, it's, I think specifically about waiting? Was it me? Okay. Well, somebody, somebody mentioned, it was just what you said, active waiting, right? And it's the exact opposite of this, like giving up or just being lazy. It's really being open to what God has put in front of you here and now, because he's put you in specific places with specific people, and that is what you're called in the times where you're waiting for a prayer to be answered or something to happen to lean into and to devote yep. yourself fully to, and that's a very active thing. So I think they're, they're polar opposites in some yep. ways. And if you find yourself having trouble with that, we would love to talk to you. Totally. Go for it. Look at this. We're going to get through all of them. Uh, who is the loneliest person you know personally? Don't name anyone. <laughs> Justin. <laughs> but what would you say to them if it was guaranteed that you would be heeded? That is a great question, too. I think there are a lot of people that are desperately lonely out there. And some of them are people who wear their heart on their sleeve, and it's very clear that they're desperately lonely. And then there are other people that appear to have it all together, and they're bouncing from party to party and thing to thing, and they are desperately lonely as well. And what I would say if I, um, and I, I can think of some people in my life that I think have struggles with extreme loneliness, uh, that part of, sort of two parts. The first part is that if you're not in a relationship with God, that is the first place where you might want to um, make some changes. Because I think scripture talks about the fact that the Lord is the father to the fatherless, the friend of the friendless. The love that comes from God is something that is life changing and perspective changing. So I think trying to bring that person toward God uh, is part of it. The second thing is that I think that a lot of people who are lonely are waiting for other people to take the initiative to reach out to them. Or if they're taking the initiative themselves, they don't know how to do that in a healthy ways. So I think what I would want to do is to talk with the person about who are some people that you think God has maybe put in your path who might be good friends? What are some ways that you might be able to reach out to them in a way that would be appropriate and engaging? Um, a lot of that, uh, I think, oftentimes will involve doing things with a group of people. Uh, so those would be some things I would offer. That's really good. Yeah, we talked a lot about, we had a session on loneliness, as you could tell, this is one of those. Uh, I don't know if the word depression ever even came up in that, but I think this certainly would it be, should. Uh, it yeah. should, right? Because I think depression, as you're well aware, I'm sure, is one of the uh, just huge um, mental health issues of today. And the numbers are just frightening how high uh, loneliness and depression they're related. And I think looking at what scripture says, right? So even if you are a Christian, I would want to encourage you first and foremost, and this isn't going to be like the silver bullet for anything, but just some of the sweetest words in all of the Bible are addressed to suffering people mm -hmm. and to lonely, hurting people. And 
So the Psalms in particular give great voice. I would say praying those will help you cry out to God. If you don't even know where to start, just reading the Psalms would be a great place to go. And uh, I think you'll also see the character of God as you open up his word towards how compassionate, how near he is to the brokenhearted. Now, at the same time, it's also said that in, in the Bible, it's not good for man to be alone, right? And I think that is true, that God in his, you know, he could have made us that all we needed was him, but right. he made us in but such a way that yeah. we do need other people. And so I love what you said about taking some effort, right? And if you're in depression, like you just are in this fog of, I can't even step one foot in front of the other. And so I would say set really attainable goals and try to stick to just one foot in front of the other on a small level of, uh, and, and just being faithful with that for a couple weeks at a time. That may feel like an eternity, but keep after it. Keep putting your place but in the scenarios that you mentioned. I think we're, we're good places to, to work at that. So. That's really good. Uh, anything else you'd add to that? Yeah. Okay. Are the spiritual gifts like prophecy and speaking in tongues still present and active in the modern church? Okay. Yeah, so let's jump into that. Um, <laughs> now so for something else. There are some theological views about this that have names. Um, so one of those big fancy names is dispensationalism. Uh, which has the theological belief that those supernatural gifts were only for the time of the apostles and that now those gifts no longer operate. Um, you could also be called a cessationist. Yeah, those are to a cessationist. Cessationist. Secession. Yes, uh, which is also not Satanist. Um, so, uh, but... What all of that means is there are Christians who believe that those gifts no longer are active. I personally don't see in scripture anything that says that those gifts are no longer active and that they are still incorporated in the lists of gifts in the New Testament. What I do think is that there were many more um, what you might call signs and wonders that occurred during the time when Jesus was being revealed as the Messiah to help point people to him. Um, but I do think that God, I would never want to um, quench the spirit, which we're enjoined not to do that in scripture, um, by saying that the spirit couldn't move in some of these ways. Yeah, That's really helpful. I think one of the things too that I would add to that is that both sides, whether they believe that the, the gifts of, those particular gifts of the spirit stopped with the, the first apostles, right? That first time. Whether you believe they stopped or whether they, you believe they continue on today, you're a continuationist. Both agree that there's something really important about that first generation after mm -hmm. Jesus. Because this is the key. That's when the scriptures came into like, yes. their fulfillment. It was You had all the, the eyewitnesses of Jesus writing what they saw with their eyes uh, and um, finishing the scriptures, basically, by being inspired by the Holy Spirit. Mm -hmm. And that, both sides would want to say, e even prophecy, even speaking in tongues, all those things are underneath Under scripture. Yes. The, the authority and must be interpreted by Scripture. Yes. I'm with you. I, I, I think that there's, when you look at, what, first of all, you have to define, what is prophecy? I don't think it's so much like fortune-telling as many think it is. It's probably closer to having a word of knowledge or guidance from the Lord, and, um, and that's not to be... You know, or understanding how to apply scripture right. to a situation. It could be like yeah. preaching. I mean, yeah. that's one of the things. And so it's not to be yielded in like this loosey-goosey way, but uh, to be used appropriately within the church. Same thing with tongues. A lot of people get, you know, what is that? Is it just like this incomprehensible language? Is it an angelic language? Uh, is it the actual other languages, like in Pentecost, where the... Um, when the Holy Spirit came, they were speaking other languages that humans could understand from different parts of the world. All of those are different kinds of tongues. And so you have to, you know, this gets really technical pretty quickly here, but like, what do you mean by prophecy in tongues? Um, but I, I would probably agree with you that I do think that there is a sense that they continue on today, but I would want to point to Scripture being the ultimate authority. Yes, there. and they should all point to Jesus. Correct, yes. Yeah. 
what is the best way to interact with someone who may be uncomfortable showing vulnerability? That is another really good question. Uh, I think vulnerability is something that is really difficult. Uh, I think that in our culture today, we are very focused on wanting to keep up an image of being strong um, and together. Or we may be at the other extreme of wanting to make clear that we have a lot of issues and that we have our therapist and that we're managing everything. Um, but we don't open up in our relationships. And I think vulnerability is the key to having depth in any kind of relationship. And uh, you must trust the person that you're being vulnerable with. But I think the best way when you are in a relationship and you perceive that the other person uh, is afraid to be vulnerable or reluctant to be vulnerable, the best thing that you can do is to lead the way by being vulnerable yourself. Because rarely have I had the experience um, where when I opened up and talked about things that were hard with someone, um, where that other person did not respond in kind. So I think that is a really important way. Um, depending on the strength of your relationship, you might be able to actually say to the person that seems to me that we, we don't have a lot of vulnerability in our friendship, and maybe um, that's something we should consider. Yeah, I'm glad you said that because I do think more often than not in relationships, being honest about what's actually happening mm -hmm. is going to fare well for you. And so you can't make somebody be vulnerable. I think recognizing you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make it drink. You can, and, and that's so important when it comes to relationships is that we may really, really want somebody to actually share more, but at the end of the day, that's, that's got to be their choice to do. Now, what do you do then? I think you can lead with your own vulnerability. You can also, little things like showing yourself to be trustworthy. Yes. You can honor your time commitments. Showing up promptly, following up on your word, mm -hmm. is going to subconsciously probably produce trust that this is a person who is trustworthy. And to not gossip about other people around them, because that's probably a fear and vulnerability, is if I expose myself somebody with, with what is something really personal in my own heart, if I share that, this person's going to air it out to everybody else. And yeah. so when you don't do that sort of thing, the chances of somebody actually being vulnerable with you go up. Yeah. And I think the other thing to think about is if this person is a Christian, um, thinking about some scripture verses like bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ, if you're not willing to talk about what your burdens are, you're depriving the other person of being able to live out what that verse is talking about. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and even being willing to say that, you know, you may not be able to, to go this level in vulnerability, and that's okay for right now. Like, I would love to know more about it, but I understand if you're not there, that's okay. Mm -hmm. But I would love to get there if you get to that point, yep. you know? I think stating that is, is a helpful thing. All right. Can you explain John 9.25, which I guess is, he answered and said, okay, so this is about the blind man. Uh, when Jesus healed a blind man, and he said about Jesus, whether Jesus is a sinner or not, I do not know. One thing I do know, though I was blind, now I see. Yes. Oh, John 9. It's so great. It's so great. It is actually one of the most hilarious passages in the New Testament. I just, I love that chapter, but in, what goes on in that chapter is that this blind man is healed by Jesus, and the Pharisees, the religious leaders, are totally freaked out by it, and they don't know how to explain the fact that he was healed. And the Pharisees are saying right before the verse that's quoted there, this man, Jesus, although they want to name him, this man must be a sinner. And the reason that he must be a sinner is that he healed this blind man on the Sabbath. <coughs> and of course, nowhere in scripture does it say, you may not heal people on the Sabbath. But the Pharisees had created a whole system of regulations that said you couldn't do that. So they're saying 
to this man, give glory to God, that guy who healed you was a sinner. And so the guy comes back and says, whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. I just know that I was once blind and now I see, which of course is where John Newton got that line in the hymn Amazing Grace. But uh, he gave the blind man, or the man who once was blind, goes on in this dialogue with the Pharisees as they're asking more and more questions and says, um, do you want to follow him also? And, um, they keep asking. And, and, and finally they get so fed up and they, they just yell at him and say, you were born in utter sin, get out. <laughs> and then, of course, the beautiful thing is right after that, Jesus goes and finds the man. And they have this beautiful exchange. Yeah. Uh, this is, a, it's like, I already told you. He, um, oh, wait, they said, uh, he answered, I, I've told you already and you wouldn't listen to me. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to be one of his disciples? I think you can imagine the look on the Pharisees' faces. The Pharisees are like, we want to destroy him <laughs> and not become his disciples, actually. So, but that was it. I mean, that was the miraculous thing was this guy, I mean, healing a man uh, who was born blind, right. not just like was blind later in life, but that was unheard of. And they dragged the guy's parents in there and they're like, is this your son? And they're like, uh, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, you should read John Nunn sometimes. It's quite entertaining. <laughs> but, yeah, I think... But they're not, the he's not he's really not casting sinner. doubt on... That's right. Jesus, Jesus is sinless. That's definitely the case. But yes. he's saying, listen, all I know is he has the power to heal me. So, Oh, here we go. Does God choose people, or do people just choose God? Yes. And I think in similar... Yeah, there you go. Next one. <laughs> <laughs> No. <laughs> well, there is a there's a similar question with Romans chapter nine that somebody was like, "How do you understand like in salvation? Does God save everybody, or does he like how does all that work? Help me understand Romans nine. That was another question that. And then there also is Philippians. I am confident confident this very thing that he who began a good work in you, God who began a good work in you, will bring it to completion in the day of Christ Jesus. And then it goes on to say. Therefore, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. So it really is, yes. It's, That's right. It's both of those. It is God calling to you and opening your heart, even when you're not aware of it, to make it possible that you can respond to the Holy Spirit. But again, God not forcing you to respond to the Holy Spirit. That it is your choice about whether to do that. I think the only thing I'd add would be, um, yeah, God clearly doesn't save everybody. Like that's he wouldn't. Jesus wouldn't talk about hell so much if if he was like, well, actually, we're just going to save everybody. Jesus talks about hell a whole lot throughout the New Testament, and so if God doesn't save everybody, how then does he save some but not others? That's always the question, right? But this is this is the real practical side of it: is if you believe in grace, real grace. You have to believe at the end of the day, it's not you who save yourself. Mm-hmm. It's God's decision to save sinners. That's the unanimous testimony of Scripture. Now, we do respond, as you said. Right. But grace is this radical principle that we don't save ourselves. It's God who does that. And the door has to be unlocked from the other side. And when it is, yes. it changes everything. Yes. Right. Okay, you already grabbed yeah. one. What advice do you have for those in a Christian relationship who are not engaged or married, but are wanting to grow toward a Christian marriage. What would you say? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think it's actually a really good question to consider. Uh, I think the most important thing, uh, if you want to grow toward a Christian marriage, even if you are just dating and not necessarily thinking about marriage or sure that this is the relationship, I don't think any of that matters. I think that the important thing is that whatever your relationship, whether it's a dating relationship or a friendship, part of what you should be doing is trying to encourage that other person to grow in his or her walk with Christ. And if you are looking toward marriage or in a dating relationship, um, thinking about how do you help motivate that other person to grow in his or her relationship with God. 
And then I think a question to be evaluating about um, where the relationship is leading is whether you believe that God could use you more effectively if you were to be married versus single. Um, I think that part of what we miss today, there's a lot in the New Testament that talks about God's call on our lives and that we are called to be used by God for the things of his kingdom. And marriage should be, if it's Christian marriage, something that helps us to move more deeply into that. Sometimes, and particularly in modern American Christian culture, we think of marriage as like a cul-de-sac that we get married and then we have our little happy bubble with our children um, and we go to church on Sunday. But that, that is not a scriptural understanding that marriage should be something that is missional. Yeah. Marriage is just as much a calling as singleness or being whatever your profession is, right? Like those are areas that God has put you in that you are called to faithfulness. And so I think recognizing what I'd say a couple things. First, if you're not married, uh, you're not married, actually. That may sound mm-hmm. just superfluous, but thinking of yourself, there's two categories in the Bible. You're either married or you're to treat one another essentially as brother and sister, as if you're both Christians. And I think those are the fundamental paradigms of how you should even think about what your relationship is to look like. That would be really helpful just to start with that, I mm-hmm. think. Uh, and so also friendship what does it look like to cultivate friendships because guess what you're going to need to do that whether you're not married and you're going to need to do that when you get married is cultivating this friendship that will be there I would also say I mean you know if you're in med school or you know you're preparing to be a doctor right people spend years getting ready to do this wondrous thing and yet I find so I just taught a class uh, in some Sunday school uh, a marriage class and I find folks tend to not want to, I don't even want to think about marriage until I get there. And that's just foolishness. Imagine if you approached like medical school or you know, law school or something that's in that way. So I would say if this is something that you actually want, look at what the Bible says about marriage. Explore what does it mean to be a Christian husband or a Christian wife. Begin to try to grow in those virtues that the Bible teaches both for Christian husbands and wives. And look for older people who have marriages that oh, you yeah. believe are strong and learn from them. That's a great one, yeah. <laughs> All right, what do y'all know about the, I can't even pronounce that word, Anu, Anuaki? Oh. Anuaki and the Nephilim from Genesis chapter six, for example. All right, I knew this question was- Brian, good. really, really- and My answer to this one. question is, if you're the person that asked that, get a life. Uh, because that is a pretty arcane spiritual question. However, we're going we're going to take it. Do you want me? Right. We're gonna we're going to. I will take it I will seriously. answer much more gently than that. <laughs> I did that once too, like months ago. Where I, I and we've been trying to walk that back ever since. We have. Yes. So finally, you had a response that was on par. If with I just crushed time. your soul, please, I'm sorry. Please come back. Listen, we're gonna take this so seriously now. The Nephilim. All right. I actually don't know what that first term is. Do you have any idea? I have no idea. Okay, so I don't know what that is. But the Nephilim, they're mentioned in Genesis chapter 6. They're mentioned in Numbers as well, both in the Old Testament. It's really easy. We don't really know exactly what they are. Some people think that they are like, I've heard some people say that they're like aliens, which is borderline conspiracy stuff. Uh, More likely, most of the Old Testament scholars I've read said that they were giants. They're just like legendary warrior kind of people that not just the Jewish people, but all sorts of folks in the ancient Near East would have known about. So that's the Nephilim. They were renowned giant warriors. So but they're not in Lord of the Rings. Are you sure? They're not. They're not. Oh, okay. All right. Tone it down, Brian. All right. I don't need to tone it down because how do we combat communism? <laughs> Yeah, this is what happens when you pick the questions out of the whole You're up for the next few. All right, so um, to give a little context here, I think this was a leftover question from last time yes. when we were talking about the dystopian novels, Brave New World, 1984, and that hideous strength where there is an all-powerful state that is in many ways like a communist state 
um, that becomes sort of the one world government. So I'm suspecting that that, that is where this question comes from. Um, there actually is a really good book that talks about this is by a guy named Rod Dreher, who you may have heard of, and uh, the book is called Lift Not By Lies. And basically what he does in that book, and y'all are so young, you don't remember this, but I'm old, so I do remember it, uh, that most of Eastern Europe used to be communist. And then during a period of time, starting uh, with the Czech Republic and other countries in Eastern Europe, there were uprisings of the people where they were able to overthrow the communist and socialist government in a lot of these places. And what Rod Dreher did was to go around to uh, Christians who lived in those countries under the previous communist regime and said, what did you do? How did you live under that um, in a way that gave you hope and helped you to um, ultimately bring about um, this change that happened in the government. And it was interesting because there were several things that were key in there. One was the importance of worship and small group fellowship and reliance on the scriptures. Memorizing scripture um, when possessing Bibles was illegal. Um, and then the one that is probably the reason I love this book so much. Um, he said part of what they realized is that parents had a hard job to teach their children about the difference between good and evil because the state controlled all of the media. And so things that were manifestly evil were being presented as this is something that's really good. And so they had small underground cells of people reading to their children the Lord of the Rings because it had such a great delineation between good and evil. And it showed the possibility of hope even when there's great darkness. Yeah. I, I would want to back up and say, you know, the Bible doesn't prescribe a certain kind of government, doesn't prescribe communism, doesn't prescribe capitalism. That's really important. You know, you can actually make a case. I mean, I've heard some people look at Acts and mm -hmm. say, look at the disciples. They shared everything and had everything in common. So that should be like socialism. And I'm like, well, okay, I respect that argument. But the Bible also teaches that every single person is uh, depraved and wicked in their natural state as we are in, on the side of sin. And so by giving power to as many people as possible, it inevitably leads to um, people trying to take that power and, and manipulate. And so you can, you know, should we have big government? Should we have small government? The Bible doesn't say explicitly, but you can have help, I think, deduce, like I said, um, what does it teach us about people? And so I, I do like where we are in our nation where there's checks and balances to mm -hmm. the human heart is deceitful above all things, the Bible says, right? And so making sure that we recognize that we don't necessarily just, yeah, we still have the image of God. People, even non-Christians, do many wonderful, more, more wonderful things than me. Uh, but there is still in every person both good and wickedness that's there. And so I think we do need to have checks and balances to that. I don't know. And we are enjoined by scripture to pray for our government right. and pray for our leaders, which is something that uh, through most of Christian history, people took very seriously. And now a lot of times we think of that as kind of window dressing and we need to recover an understanding of how important that is. So we're gonna stop and go because we have 15 minutes left. Um, there's so many questions we didn't get to. Ah, next but we time. went pretty quick for us. <laughs> Maybe. All right, who, how are we doing? Um, it's Hugh, right? Yes. <laughs> yeah, we got a bunch of questions. Um, Fantastic. So if you haven't already, um, go ahead and uh, submit your questions to that. You can also upload questions to get it more attention. So that goes to the top of the list. It's all development to do that.
There it goes. Wow. Yeah. Was that on the electrical equipment? All right, so the top question is, what should you say to a friend who is struggling with wanting to come to Theology on Tap because of the church's view on homosexuality? Uh, that is a good question. Uh, what I would say is that we welcome everybody with every perspective about anything um, to come to Theology on Tap and that uh, they would be most welcome and that understanding about that particular issue is only one out of myriad things that there are in the Christian faith. Um, so I would encourage them to come anyway because I think if we were to do a poll of where every person in here stood on every issue, we would probably be all over the place. I guarantee um, it, based on the questions. But the, the important thing is what we're seeking to do more than anything else is to think about what does it mean to follow Jesus with your whole heart. So I would encourage that person to come. That's a great, I mean, one of the questions that we answered earlier about what do you do with the level of vulnerability, right? And, and so some people may not feel comfortable. I, we, I would hope that they would, and that'd be great. Um, I think what I would want to say at the end of the day is that the reason we started this two years ago to come here was to find any way we could to have anyone, and we've had folks, all sorts of folks, many of you <laughs> have not been around. Has anybody been around since we started this two years ago? Like, yeah, like a handful. We have had all sorts of folks, of people, in all kinds of conditions of life come into this room during this time. The whole reason we started this was because we had good news to share. Good news about Jesus, because he offers good news. Mm -hmm. And now that, that good news begins with really hard news for every single person. But fundamentally, at the end of the day, we're about good news. And so that's what I would hope somebody would would hear is that there's something even greater than, I th as in our day, sexuality, we can't even conceive of something greater than that. There's something so much greater than sexuality that's out there for us. That's, yeah. What hymns or, what hymns or sang y'all's wedding? <laughs> wow. Oh, that actually is a funny story about that. So when Jen and I got married, um, we got married in Atlanta at North Avenue Presbyterian Church, which is a wonderful church there. Uh, but the minister had a lot on his plate. And so he could never remember who we were. And so he was convinced that I was in med school. And so um, we went for all of our marriage prep and every time it's like, how is it at med school at Emory? You know, how's that going for you? Um, yeah, so there was that. But anyway, when we had our wedding, uh, we had picked that we were going to sing A Mighty Fortress is Our God, which is a great hymn for a wedding. Um, we were going to sing Joyful, Joyful, We Adore Thee, which is also a great hymn for a wedding. And we were also going to sing Praise to the Lord, the Almighty, the King of Creation. So all good is in the service leaflet, all of that. So we get up there, and you know, the minister is pretty much in control of what happens in a wedding. Well, he sort of forgot that we had hymns. So we got up there, and we like did everything, and then he's like, oh, there's some hymns. Well, let's sing those. So we sang them in a row. No, you did not. We did. Yes, we did. Oh, that's bad. So, but that's all right. Wow. Because they were awesome hymns. I honestly don't remember mine. I have no idea. I think we did. I'd rather have Jesus. I no. <laughs> I mean, I don't. To be fair, I don't remember the hymns really from any service ever. But that I mean, I can't. I can't well, tell you a, a specific service. Justin, I thought we were friends. It's your wedding. Yeah, I was just trying to stand up and speak the words at my wedding, y'all. I mean, listen, I've been more concerned about living into those vows than remembering those notes. But It's all good. It's all no, I'm going to have to, like, I'm honestly, Molly, I'm sorry. Um, I'm going to have to find out what the hymns were. But no, there, I'm sure, we had a choir. I know there was a choir there. We had so many priests at the wedding. I remember that. There was a lot of them there. But um, yeah, I, I can't we'll, wait. We'll get back to you on that for Justin. Those are great ones yes. that you had.
<laughs> they were, especially in Mighty Fortresses of God. That doesn't usually get sung at weddings, but if you look at yeah. the words, it actually is a really great hymn for a wedding. So. How can I be a good friend for my friends who are gay while honoring the scriptures that discourage homosexual lifestyle and activity? That is a great question. Uh, I think that the most important thing in being a friend to someone is to love that person and to pray for them. And I have a fair number of friends who are gay and we've been friends for a long time and they know exactly where I stand uh, about that, but they also know that I'm not going to say, well, I'm not going to have anything to do with you because I disapprove or somehow um, am uncomfortable with that part of your lifestyle. So I think that continuing to love that person, um, inviting that person to be part of your life, uh, inviting them to church, even though they may not necessarily want to do that, but um, to invite them to come and see um, is all good. And I would say it's really just like being a friend to any other person. Yeah. yeah I feel like we've touched on some of that already. I echo what you just said is that, yeah, being persistent and faithful and being a uh, presence and listening well is all, all these things that make good friends in general asking questions, right? Like um, being able to not just cover up. A, a good friend would actually want to know what you think as well. And mm -hmm. so it does go both ways. And part of what, I mean, I, I don't think there's any relationship out there where you agree on absolutely everything. Right. Part of the nature of friendship is being able to learn how do I, how do we get along, how do we care for one another when we disagree on things? Mm -hmm. That's an art that we need to recover. Yes, definitely. What are the origins of the Anglican Church? We've covered this. I we know have, we have. We have, but we because can, somebody's, we can cover it again. somebody's really interested in this. Um, yes, this is not quite a go get a life uh, question. <laughs> so, um, a lot of people just don't know about the Anglican Church. So, the Anglican Church uh, began with the Christian missionaries who came to England uh, in the first century, who were Roman soldiers for the most part, who had been converted to Christianity. And Christianity really took off in England so that by the fourth century there were multiple bishops in England sending uh, people to the continent. Uh, and then St. Patrick in the 400s uh, was a British Christian. He was kidnapped by pirates um, from England as a teenager and then taken to Ireland. So Christianity was alive and well there. Um, the Roman Catholic Church, except it wasn't that at that point, uh, but the church headquartered in Rome, sent missionaries in 597 to England, uh, to Canterbury, and they were very surprised to discover that there were already Christians who were there. So there was kind of this back and forth, and then there was something called the Senate of Whitby, where they kind of tried to iron out differences between the Roman view of Christianity, the English view, there was this uneasy cohabitation uh, that was sort of under the Pope at that point, and then Henry VIII, broke with the Pope for a variety of reasons, and that established the Church of England as being its own thing, not under the Pope, and then it continued to grow and grow and grow, and uh, the Anglican Church today, um, after the Roman Catholic Church and the Orthodox Church, is the third largest body of Christians in the world. Uh, the Anglican Church in North America there's a whole nother sort of thing about the division between that and the Episcopal Church that I'm not going to go into other than the Anglican Church is in communion like our church is in communion with about 80% of the worldwide Anglican communion. That was pretty darn good for a couple minutes to cover 14, 1600 years, years of, of history. history. The only thing I would say, which I think I've said before too, is that as the British Empire spread in like the 1800s, yes, that's how it got around yes. the world. Maybe. And the vast majority of Anglicans right now are in Africa. Correct. Your average Anglican is a 30-year-old Nigerian woman, believe it or yeah. not. So that's what our demographics are. Yeah. Next. What is the prosperity gospel? How can I identify it when I hear someone preaching it? That is that's an excellent good. question. So the prosperity gospel is a misreading of scripture that says that if you follow Jesus, 
he will make you uh, rich and uh, you will not ever get sick and that everything in your life will basically go right. Uh, and so uh, it is uh, achieved by cherry picking certain verses of scripture and then disregarding <laughs> lots of other scripture. Uh, typically the prosperity gospel is associated uh, with certain mega church preachers. Joel Osteen would be one um, who is sort of associated with that movement. Uh, but one of the ways that you can spot prosperity gospel uh, theology is that when there is not a respect or an emphasis on teaching all of scripture, but there's just a harping on certain parts of scripture over and over again, um, also, if you find, um, well, I'm not going to say that, uh, but there, there are just, there, there are a lot of uh, cues that there might be something off. Yeah, uh, the biggest thing, guaranteed physical material blessings in this life would be the thing to like listen up for. Uh, because, and the biggest way that we know the scriptures don't teach that is the person of Jesus, who was God, lived the most fulfilling life there was, and was poor, homeless, destitute, uh, you know, betrayed. And put to death. And put to death. Yes. Paul, as well, went through, you can read through in 2 Corinthians 11, his laundry list of what happened in his life, suffering, shipwrecks, all this stuff. But the amazing thing, the one thing, and this is what they, it, gosh, it's such a slight twist, is there is so much joy to be had in and through sometimes the suffering we experience. We don't go looking for it, mm -hmm. but there is peace, there is joy, there is um, fruitfulness that we can enjoy in the Christian faith. Otherwise, we wouldn't be up here doing any of this, right? right? But right. Um, we look forward to the day where we will have this whole world would be righted as it ought to be, but that isn't guaranteed here and now. It's in, when Jesus returns is when sin and suffering and poverty will finally be uh, rid altogether. Yeah, if you want to listen to a good song about prosperity gospel, um, look up Janis Joplin, Oh Lord, Won't You Buy Me a Mercedes Benz. <laughs> Pretty good. A couple more? How to share crisis hope with someone from a Christian background who is struggling with clinical depression or suicidal thoughts in their state of mind. What's the first part of that? How to share what kind of hope? How to share crisis hope. Crisis hope, okay. Yeah, so I think that that is something that's difficult. Uh, I think one of the things that you would want to do if you're in a position where you're close to this person and you can speak into their life is to make sure that they are actually getting appropriate care um, mentally and physically because that sort of suicidal ideation and that kind of deep clinical depression um, needs medical treatment as well. But I think part of what you can do if you are trying to walk with that person as their friend is to share regularly the hope of the gospel with them, um, to uh, encourage them to memorize scripture uh, that has to do with the fact that God calls us to hope, um, to encourage them to read things uh, that will uh, produce help, hope in them, and to not uh, let them feel like you're just going to abandon them uh, to their pit of despair. Because I think staying committed with someone who's walking through that is really important. But also realizing that it's not your job to fix that person. Um, Jesus is the only one who can bring healing, um, while at the same time they need to be using the resources that are available medically. That's great. Yeah, it's got to be holistic. Um, I think, you know, look at Job and his suffering. It, it's uh, His friends start off so well when they come and they just weep with him and they sit there and they listen. It's a great start. Uh, trivializing and just quickly jumping, oh, rejoice in the Lord, you know, without actually giving a lot of weight to their suffering is actually one of the worst things you can do. And it's not going to instill a lot of hope. So actually really attuning to to them and, and the experience, giving weight to that. But Christians do, yeah, there, there is actual hope that we can have, even in the worst of circumstances. And so 
a lot of that's through osmosis over time, yeah. like having a relentless joy and curiosity for this person and moving towards them, asking them questions and sticking it out over the long haul. A lot of change takes time. And so uh, that's the bit I'd add to that. Yeah. We got one time for one more, I think. Is Christianity inherently political? Is Christianity inherently political? I would say no. Um, I would say Christianity is inherently apolitical. Wow, that's the first thing in my mind. <laughs> what? <laughs> um, because Jesus says his first words literally in the gospel are the time has come, the kingdom of God is near, repent and believe in the good news. And what he's saying is that the kingdom of God is what he has come to usher in. And the kingdom of God is different from any political system that there is on this earth. And its values are different from any political system that there is on this earth. And so you can find, uh, there's a great discussion of this actually in C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity, uh, where Lewis talks about, well, what would it look like if we were trying to establish Christian politics? And he says, if you were really trying to establish a scriptural view of things, you would make everybody in every political party angry because there are some parts that from a more conservative, what we would call perhaps a Republican side, there are some parts that you would strongly embrace. But then there would also be parts from what we would call a more liberal or democratic side that you would also strongly embrace. And what Lewis says is no political party in the history of the world has ever fully embraced the values of the kingdom of God. That's good. When Jesus was on trial, Pilate asked him, uh, are you the king of this nation called the Jews? Jesus said, um, do you say this of your own accord or did others say it to you about me? And he said, Pilate said, am I a Jew? He wasn't a Jew. Uh, your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over. So, Right there is, I think, yeah. the clearest statement of the apolitical nature of Jesus' kingdom here and now. It doesn't mean he doesn't care about this world. He deeply does. But I, I love Lewis's essay. Is it, it transcends yes. every human approach to it. Yeah. Well, y'all, this has been fun. Next time, we we'll still, save these. We'll save them. I always say we'll come back to them. Yeah. Um, but we'll be back in two weeks right here, and we will announce the topic. Join our email list if you haven't. We'll let you know what it's going to be. But thanks for coming out. Feel free to stick around. We'll be here for a while. So Yeah, thanks for coming. Yep.